So this week we'll talk about freelancing in data engineering. And we have a special guest today, Adrian. Adrian worked as a data engineer about four years ago. If I'm right, he will correct me if I'm wrong. He decided that office life is not for him. He wants to be a freelancer. So welcome. Thank you. It's actually five years now. Five years. Yes, five years since two days ago. <laughs> wow. So uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining. So before we go into our main topic of freelancing in data engineering, let's start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? Sure. So I studied economics with a specialty in marketing in Romania. And I thought, you know, it would be a platform to statistically analyze people's behaviors or like a method to. But I discovered that the marketing industry was mostly people that wanted to be creative and not so much look at results. We even had a joke about PR that's basically when you throw the money out the window and you don't look at the results. But that aside, I came to Berlin at 25. I wanted to do things more mathematical and more logical. So I started a business analyst role. Five years later, I started working in a corporation. I didn't like it. So I switched to freelancing. I have to say I really love the journey and I would given the choice to make those choices again, I would choose freelancing again, but sooner. So can you tell us about this story? How did you become a freelancer? Well, in all honesty, so I had worked in startups for quite a while and startups are known or especially, you know, like 10 years ago were known for being very poorly paying. And I joined a corporation about five years into my career and I found that despite the better level of pay, the level of challenge was much lower. So both the standards and the opportunities to do things. So I didn't like it. I actually couldn't quite adjust to the environment. I couldn't make it work for myself. And I wasn't able to actually perform my job duties and I was let go. And I was actually too demotivated at the time to look for a new job. I literally couldn't see the good thing about joining another company. And so what happened was I just told the recruiters, yeah, if you want to place me on a project. So that's the end of the story. So how did it go after that? So uh, actually he got back to me, uh, the recruiter that I was talking to got back to me with a couple of projects. Within a couple of conversations, I was already signing a contract. So my first project was helping a team clean up a lot of legacy that had been left behind over the years and implement airflow it was pretty nice. It was actually the first time I was doing that. And I guess I was worried in the beginning that work would be difficult to come along, but actually the projects just kept coming. I didn't even take vacation for the first year and a half. It seems like it was quite easy for you. A recruiter just reached out to you and you said, oh, you know what, I'm more interested in project-based work rather than full-time job. And then the recruiter got back to you, right? It sounds quite easy. Was it like that? It is actually like that. So when it comes to the fit between yourself and the job, you normally have a lot more steps involved. So, you know, you want to look for a good company, you want to look for a good team, you have maybe four, maybe six interviews. With freelancing, it's not like that. It's more or less like they look at your history, they ask you if you can do it, what you think about it. And you should be honest because, frankly, if you can't do it, that's just going to follow your reputation. So, you know, if everybody has a good feeling, then it usually takes only one or two talks. There is no job security. So if they don't like working with you, you could get fired within a day or five. So that's why the process is much easier, right? Because uh, to get a job at a corporation, you need, like, as you said, four to six interviews. And there are all sorts of interviews, like behavioral interviews, I don't know, coding exercises, take home assignments, and so on, right? But here you just talk, they tell you what to do. You say if you can or cannot do this. And that's pretty much it, or? Much, yeah. That sounds way easier. Why not everyone is doing this? Yeah, I think the reason why not a lot of people are doing this is because nobody likes risk. And there is an element of uh, risk involved. So ultimately, you need to calculate with some kind of occupancy rate. And I think if you calculate with it at around 75%, then you might be on the same level as a salary, depending on how well you negotiated your salary. 
What is the capacity rate you said? Like depending, like it should be 75% or something. How many of your hours you're going to manage to occupy and sell? Uh -huh. So you have about 2,000 in a year, maybe less. So, you know, if you can calculate with occupying 1,500, that would be good. Mm -hmm. So this is the risk of not being able to occupy all the hours, right? Yes, frankly, the risk is real. And for a lot of people, there is a lot of risk if you take a salary that's equivalent to 75% of what you could make as a freelancer and people's expectation of you might also be different. The process with feedback and adjustment might be different. Some people say, you know, that's a false security. I would agree since I've worked in my share of startups and I've been on the list and I've seen other people on the list and I keep seeing them. This keeps happening. The list? What the is list? the list? Got let go. I oh. think only in the last couple of months we've seen a few, right? Uh -huh. This kind of list, okay. Yeah, but still uh, like a full-time job is probably more secure in a way that it's not easy to let people go. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah, and ultimately, you know, you have an unemployment insurance. So worst case, you go into unemployment. As a freelancer, you can optionally pay it. But because, at least in Germany, it's uh, capped at such a low amount, it wouldn't be worth it, really, because you'd be paying a very large percentage of a large sum of money, which you would never be getting back. Mm -hmm. And what was the scariest part for you when you were transitioning to freelancing? So, okay, you told the recruiter that you were more interested in projects and then the recruiter told you okay we have these projects like were you scared here like whoa did you worry about this i was more worried about imposter syndrome in the beginning and also let's say on my second project we didn't have a very good chemistry or team fit so i didn't enjoy working in that team and i wanted to end it early which i did and it was the right decision everybody was happy with it and you know i was initially worried am i going to find work but i did okay so you're saying that it might happen that because there are just two interviews right maybe it might happen that during these interviews you don't know if you're going to like the company and it might turn out that you don't but it's fine yes. there's nothing to worry about you can just say okay looks like it's not working for us let's part ways right I think the biggest, scariest thing in freelancing is that you're not so much in control over your flow of projects. So if you want to get a job, you know what to do. You can make a list of 50 jobs, you start applying to them in order or five at a time. Eventually, you're going to get one. It's in your power. But when it comes to freelancing, it's not like that. Usually the set of projects is kind of limited over a short period of time. So if you look out there, you see all of them or a recruiter will tell you all of them. And if you check back next week, it might be a different set or not, but that's kind of it. And unless you have your own personal network that's coming to you, which again is kind of like they come to you and it's not so much in your control, then you know you might start feeling a little scared. Yeah, probably we should talk more about personal network, but a bit later. Now I wanted to ask you about your first project. So I think you mentioned, uh, you talked a little bit about that. So you said that uh, your first project was to set up clean legacy setup airflow, right? Was this the kind of services you provide, like building data pipelines, setting up airflow, removing legacy? Do you remember what exactly were the services, the skills, the, the things you helped with? Yeah. So I developed a quite diverse skill set before because I did end-to-end -end work in uh, startups. And when you do that, you have to do everything. So I was pretty flexible, actually, and I was more concerned about being a freelancer than the specific type of work. So I have to say I was quite flexible. So the first work was essentially engineering, programming. Uh, the second project was data science. The third project was actually, it was a funny one, just a two day helping with an ICO. So went in office in some strange building to be all right with the data privacy laws. It was interesting. Charged double my rate because it was on short notice on a Sunday. <laughs> that aside, I think my third project was actually 
one that took about a year. So it was building a data warehouse and later creating the team for Urban Sports Club. But for this one, the, the one that took one year for you building a very data warehouse and then a team, isn't this kind of stuff usually like don't companies usually have like a full-time employee like i don't know head of data or whatever taking care of that i think so and i think a lot of people believe the same this is why i think it's not a great idea to be actively looking for work as a freelancer some people already know that you're not the right solution just because you're not employed or something like that but other people just want to solve a problem mm -hmm. so this is how it comes to be ultimately If you are reliable, if you are able to deliver independently, if you are proactive, uh, you will see a lot of interesting work. Mm -hmm. So I guess they didn't hire you to build a team, but eventually you just proved yourself to be reliable. And then one project after another with this company, you ended up building a team for them. I pushed them, right? Because I built a data warehouse and data warehouse build took two weeks. And then it took like three months to actually properly define what we should be looking at and to get everyone to agree. And then, you know, came the point, okay, well, now you're going to want to have someone in the house taking care of this. So, you know, hired the first people. We got some embedded analysts because now the teams were consuming the data, trained some people and finally hired the replacement. Mm -hmm. How did your services evolve over these five years? What are you doing now? Is it much different from what you did before? Right now, it's actually quite different. So I would say my last major project was building, I would say, a prototype or, you know, not quite production ready. I think it's just getting polished for production right now of a loading framework, you know, kind of like five trend, but for a specific client, for a specific space. And Now I actually founded a company to other people, one of which I met on my previous project. And I still do a little bit of consulting on the side, but I have a max capacity of one day. So I usually try to do more fun things like a little coaching. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you don't actively freelance or consult right now. It only takes 20% of your time, but You still do this and you spend the rest of your time working on a prototype, as you said, a tool like Fivetran, and then you have a company. What does the company do? So actually, this company that we started didn't have a clear, let's say, objective in the beginning. Interesting. Yeah. I think when it comes to starting companies, one of the most important things is to have a very high-functioning team. And this is what we had, and we didn't have a clear idea of what we were going to do. But we decided to do it. So we ended up building data pipeline for a company that one of my co-founders is invested in. So that would be uh, Raza. And after doing this data pipeline, we realized, you know, that the core component that we used for building this data pipeline is essentially something that all data engineers have written so many times over and over. So what we're doing now is actually we're going to release it as an open source component. I would guess it's about a week away from version 0.1. So don't consider that a launch. So you have a company, but this is at the beginning, it was more like a consultancy company anyways, even though maybe you weren't doing the actual groundwork, but there were people who would go and do this. And you are one of the founders of the, this company. And one of the things you do at the company is this open source project or like this project yeah i mean right now this company we're just building this stuff we don't have employees uh, we don't even have uh -huh. this point yeah interesting but let's say now you're pretty advanced in your freelancing slash consulting career but back then when you started i guess one of the difficult things maybe it wasn't difficult for you i don't know but it looks pretty difficult to me is deciding how much to ask the clients Like, should it be hourly rate? Should you ask for project? If it's hourly rate, how much to ask? How did you solve this problem? So for me, it was pretty easy to go for hourly, partly because it was offered to me like that on the first contract. And then I quickly realized how amazing it is to work hourly, because this means you don't actually need to sit for eight hours in the office. So if you want to go after seven hours, you can go after seven hours if you're fine with taking the pay cut. If you have somewhere to be for a few hours in a day for whatever reason, 
you know, as a freelancer, you tell your availability, you're not necessarily expected to be there all the time. So it's way more flexible. And I find it to be kind of like a better quality of life. And if I do want to do overtime, then I get paid for it. Okay. And how did you select on the rate? Did they just come to you saying, hey, this is the rate we can offer, take it or leave it? This was the first project and I have to say the rate was really low. I didn't know that at the time. So I would say the rate that you should be charging is the best that you can. And I say that because depending on how you position yourself and what kind of clients you have and what kind of skill set you have, you might be taking, let's say, as low as 60 per hour if you're working uh, not for not in Germany, let's say, not for German clients. $60. Yeah, or euro or pounds depends but you know if you're a little more senior if you're going on site if you know the people if you don't have a middleman if it's not a corporation that has a strict budget ranges and they just want to get stuff done and they want good talent then you might be charging as much as 150 per hour Mm -hmm. the rate depends very much also what you're brave enough to ask a lot of people, it reflects more their own opinion of their own value rather than what they Yeah, because I can ask, I don't know, 500, but how many people will actually be willing to give me 500? I imagine that uh, not so many, right? <laughs> right. And part of the reason is simply because they think, you know, well, 500 per hour is just unreasonable for a person. Mm-hmm. But other people just think about the value. And if you are doing something that is special and unique, you can get paid that. And a couple of questions ago, you mentioned that like in startups, I guess you learn how to do things end to end. So you were fine doing pretty much everything. So your first job was engineering and programming data engineering, and then it was data science and it was building data warehouse. How did you acquire this versatile skill set? By working a lot, I would say. (laughs) So, you know, I think it's good to always find work that challenges you at least a little bit. So when I look for job fit in a project, I look to have, let's say, somewhere between 80 and 60% match on skills. And this allows me to learn on every project. And the thing is, when it comes to freelancing, people expect that you will not be skilled or a specialist with the specific thing that they're working with. So usually they do accept that you might not be great at the specific technology or whatever, and you will have time to learn on the job and get paid for it. That's quite nice. But why would they hire a freelancer to learn on a job if they can hire a junior to learn on the job? I think a freelancer that has years of experience in both doing things and in learning things is going to be able to learn much quicker and apply (laughs) way more context and also handle things more maturely than an employee. To give you an idea, I view myself as an entrepreneur in what I do, not just a freelancer, because I need to make sure that I am getting paid, that I am getting clients and so on. Yeah, maybe other thing I wanted to ask you, I know I got contacted myself by agencies. So these agencies, the way they work is they have some clients, they have some work. So they contact me saying, hey, there is some work. Please work for our our client and they take a cut, right? So they offer you X amount of uh, hourly rate, but they charge the client X plus 50%, for example, right? Is this how they work or... As a freelancers, should we work with them? Should we try to find clients ourselves? Is it worth talking to them? That's really up to you, right? And how you like to work. So to give you an example, there are multiple types of intermediaries. So there could be a really big staffing agency like Hayes or Modis, or I think now they have a new name, something with DIS in the name. But essentially what these guys do is they just intermediate kind of a transaction and you are interfacing with the client directly. So this means you can actually create a relationship with the client. And if you don't have your own relationships or other avenues, this is okay. It's probably one of the worst earning possibilities simply because these agencies often take a third of the project value and they do not negotiate good rates for you because, you know, they just want to sell a project. They don't care about your bottom line. So 
I would say that's fine. If you don't have your own network, you know, 80 per hour is still a lot. So would you suggest uh, somebody who just wants to start in freelancing to get in touch with Heiss or some other agency and work with them first? Absolutely. I think if you want to be autonomous, that is a good way. An alternative, if you're just getting started, would be to get in touch with smaller agencies as well. When it comes to smaller agencies, usually they are expected to do project management as well, since they are the ones selling a piece of work to the client. So that means you need to sync with the agency and with the client. So in my experience, this is harder because now you have two different personas that you need to make sure you understand well and synchronize. It's actually not my favorite way. If it was up to me, I would either go with something like Haze because you know you're completely re relaxed, they do the finding for you, or with my personal clients. Mm -hmm. And the, your first project, was it from an agency? It was from such an agency. And the second one? From the same agency. Okay, and at which point it was not from uh, an agency, but from your own network? Well, I can give you a pretty simple history. So actually, this agency was paying me 60 to 70 per hour, which was quite low, even for the time. So I started looking on my own, and I had started in this time to kind of like create a network. So talk to people, to other freelancers, to potential clients. And essentially, I was able at that point to just answer to people coming back to me and ask for a higher rate. And I stopped working with those agencies. Mm -hmm. Okay. And now you find new customers, projects without this, right? Without the agencies. Yes. I would say now also the market has changed a little bit. If you have freelance data engineer in your title on LinkedIn, you will get contacted a lot. Mm -hmm. So it changed in a good way, right? in a good way yes so i think you know all these data scientists that have been in training for the last years have finally matured as professionals on the job market and there is a lot of missing engineering to support them. Mm -hmm. you know for someone that's a bit more generalist it's a wonderful yeah so how do you find new customers projects now through your network now i actually don't look so much for projects. So right now, for example, I was looking for what we call design partners. So somebody that works closely with us with this new tool that we're building to help us find bugs and use cases. And for those people, yeah, with, uh, through network. So, you know, sometimes asking people that I've worked with before, or even if I see like a new fitting project. Mm -hmm. uh, but you said you still spend 20% of your time on consulting. How do you feel this 20% and where do customers come from? So the last customer actually came from network and it was the third time around. He previously came as a customer on two separate projects. Mm -hmm. It's good to have a network. Uh, what can I say? When you network with other freelancers, it happens very often that if you have a good relationship and by good relationship, I mean, be a decent person. I don't mean sucking up. And if you are a decent person and you can communicate well, then you will get follow-up work quite often. Be honest and communicate directly. And I think the biggest fear for people is that you create problems when they bring you in. So the one way to create problems is by not communicating directly and honestly. If you do communicate, usually everything can be resolved. So how do you tell the clients that you will not create new problems for them? You listen. And if you see that there is something that is, you know, you set expectations. And if you see that those expectations are at risk of not being met. So I don't know if your work is too slow due to whatever reasons. Maybe it's you, maybe it's something else. Communicate ASAP. Mm -hmm. okay. Manage expectations. And another thing I wanted to ask, so you started as a freelancer, but now you say you do consulting for 20% of your work. Uh, what is the difference? In my opinion, from what I understood, so freelancing is more often you do the actual work yourself, but consulting is you tell others what to do. Is it the correct uh, separation? In a way, yes. Practically, my experience has been that by this definition, you're only purely a freelancer when you're coming through an agency. 
because in any other situation, you're also doing the sale. So you're consulting people like, you know, if you're in this stage, who's taking care of your stack, then maybe you could use this. So then it eventually ends up, well, now that you've told them what could be a solution that works, you could actually implement it for them or find something that can help them. Yeah, we have quite a few questions. So one of the questions is when you talk to a company, to a potential customer, uh, and they tell you about your problems, about the use cases. Do you get usually enough clarity of what they expect from you before taking a project? Or it's usually more weak, okay, something is broken, we don't know what to do? It depends, right? If something is broken, we don't know what to do, is also clarity. Mm -hmm. Usually I try to create a scope of work document before we start working, because this helps you define and manage expectations. That scope of work might be that we do a spike for two weeks and identify all the problems and what we need to do as next steps. And we agree on that. And then we reassess after two weeks if we're going to continue. So how does this scope of work document looks like? Is it like a Google document with description of a problem? You know, you can Google it. The way that I do it is quite personal. I've gotten the feedback that it's quite specific. So I like to put in as much detail of what goes in the scope, what is not in scope, you know, things about expectations, what they can expect also about working style and things like this, timelines. And then uh, you said you do a spike for two weeks. Uh, for those of us who don't know what a spike is, can you tell us about uh, the process? Yeah, so it's just taking a defined amount of time to refine a problem that is not defined. So when you have a problem and you don't know what it is, then you can't say if it's worth solving, it might take too long. So the first thing you do is actually define it. Mm -hmm. And I guess uh, like here, the main message is working iterations, right? So you, you don't know what to do. You don't know what are deliverables, what is expected for you, what is the scope. So let's take an iteration to figure that out. And then after each iteration, we can see if it still makes sense to continue to what extent to continue, what will be the scope of the next iteration, what will be, I don't know, milestones, the projects and so on, right? You know, the scope of work documents, I don't know if it's worth overthinking it simply because my experience has been that different agencies have asked me for different formats. So whatever works, ultimately it's a document that you use for managing expectations and that, you know, you can refer to on a contract. Yeah. By now, I understood that uh, having a network is very important when freelancing. So how do I go about building a network? Do I do this online and showing this work online or nobody cares about online and you need to network offline? When it comes to actually building a network, you're not building really a network, you're building relationships with individuals. So it goes without saying that the best way to build a relationship with someone is actually being present and being there and having the opportunity to communicate in all the non-verbal ways. Ultimately, what needs to happen is that at the end of the conversation, you know what this person needs and this person knows what you need and they will remember you. So maybe two years later, they might get back to you and say, hey, you're that guy that was doing that thing. Are you available? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the best way to build this relationship is, I guess, work, show how well you work, and then they will contact you or maybe recommend you to their, I don't know, friends who needs uh, help. Also. I think to be proactive. What I did actually in my first year of freelancing, I tried to have a target of meeting at least two people per week. So I would write people on LinkedIn and I would schedule breakfasts, you know, just before going to work. I would ask them where they're working and find some kind of midway or something that works. And that was a pretty quick way. Mm -hmm. So how does the message look like when you write, hey, let's catch up. I'm interested in what you're doing. I can come to the place where you live <laughs> and let's have coffee. So it's a good idea to, at least from my experience, it's a good idea to express your goals, like mm -hmm. why you want to meet this person. So, for example, I think it's important in the beginning to meet a lot of people that are doing the same thing that you're doing, but that have done for a year or two longer than you. Because this way they have already gone through the steps that you will be going through. And they have already established some network and they might actually be able to forward you some clients as well and help you out with advice. And the thing is, 
it's a win-win situation because if you tell them what you need, remember I was telling you about those percentages or fees. So freelancers will often charge each other a small fee if it makes sense. So for example, if it's my client and I sold them something and I would like you to help me on the project, I might take a five or 10%. If I'm actually managing you on the project and I have to you know, check your work, tell you what to do and stuff like that, then I will take maybe 20%. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you work for a client, let's say you're building a data warehouse, and then you see that you need help with, I don't know, some part of the pipeline, and you know somebody, uh, somebody you met before who has this kind of skills you're looking for, so you just write them on LinkedIn saying, hey, I have this project, I need this kind of help, I free now, right? Yeah, exactly. Personally, I keep close, you know, a small core of people that I've worked with before and that I enjoy, but this is how you start in the beginning. Okay, and then in the same way, like when you meet people, other freelancers, they might contact you, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And they kind of an agency in this case because they will take a small part of your fee, but still it's worth it, right? In a way. So, you know, this doesn't need to always happen, first of all. Second of all, the relationship between freelancers and clients is usually a little different. So you, when you bring another freelancer on a project, you are kind of responsible in the face of the client for the outcomes. So it's okay that you do charge a buffer and you might actually need to use that up if the person you hired is not performing. And I think it's also beneficial because a lot of new freelancers are actually smart, experienced people that are too afraid to ask for what they're worth. So they got offers for 60 per hour from some British agency when uh, you could be putting them on a project where they would be making 100 per hour or something. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's win-win ultimately. Yeah. Well, what do you think about platforms like Upwork? I think they're a waste of time, but other people have had their own experiences. The biggest problem really when you're hiring a freelancer usually is that you don't know what a good professional looks like. So, you know, if you have a good relationship with a person, you will try them out and see if they're helping you. And if not, then not. But when you're doing this online, there's no way you will know. And frankly, you will have a lot of people that are writing bullshit and bidding really extremely low on projects and stuff like $5 per hour for development. Let's get real. It's not going to work out, but the client doesn't know that. Uh, and because of that, you're wasting a lot of time. So I think you should always consider what your time is worth. And let's say you set yourself a goal for the month and say, okay, I have 170 hours. I want 100 per hour on average. So I need to make 17K. Give it a shot. If you think this platform is making you that money, then you know you can keep using it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And when you work with your clients, do you normally choose if you want to work remotely or on-site or it's up to the client? There are many projects where the client has an expectation. So it's up to you whether you take the project or not. In my experience, if you have developed a network enough so you can refuse projects, you will find a remote project. All you need to say is just no to the ones that want otherwise. Yeah, thanks. So you said you're working on something right now, on a prototype. Can you tell us more about this or it's a bit too early? I can tell you a little bit, but if you stay tuned, I think within a week I will have this first version. So the problem that I'm trying to solve is that data loading is hard. So why is it hard? Because it takes some engineering knowledge, understanding how to design good pipelines, but then you also have the problems that are unrelated to engineering, such as data typing, unpacking data, schema migrations. Actually, none of the frameworks that we currently have out there have solved this problem gracefully. And what's worse, the loading frameworks that exist out there have a very tight coupling between the source concept and the target concept. So this means you need to learn the entire framework. You need to understand it in depth. You need to learn object-oriented programming. You need to be a really good software developer to be able to do a simple source and use one of these frameworks. So actually what I've been working on is a framework that makes this very easy. You give it a JSON list or JSON uh, generator, and it automatically unpacks it. 
optionally. It types it. It generates a YAML schema that you can then, you know, manually edit and reuse and use as a loading manifest. So like the merge columns, if you want to load incrementally. So basically it decouples the source from the loading. So if you are able to produce a JSON object or a pandas data frame, it doesn't matter if it's nested as hell or whatever, this unpacker is going to manage it type it, rename the columns to something that works in the database, and then you can access it with SQL. Mm, looks pretty useful. Is it something that you saw that many clients have uh, problems with and you ended up implementing this? It's something that we ended up creating because of this Rasa data pipeline project that we did. What happened there is essentially the data is available for consumption as a conversation object. And this conversation object can be extremely complex because it has the entire conversation and all the technical actions that happen, like all the guesses the bot might make and stuff like that. So Raza is a chatbot company, right? The open source chatbot company, yeah. And essentially, you don't know what you will find in this object because it depends on implementation. So even the schema is not really fixed. So we needed a way to manage a very volatile schema, but also be able to freeze it if we want to. Because I heard this, many people want to go to consulting, to freelancing, but they don't want to do it forever. Because here you exchange time for money, right? But at some point, maybe uh, you just want to get money without spending time, right? Is it how usually freelancers do? Like at the end, they see a problem that is repeated many times. So they ended up, they end up packaging this in a product and then sell it as a product. Some people, yes, because they get bored, but you know, each person has their own ambitions and approaches. So some people simply go to three days a week and enjoy a richer life. Other people start companies, other people don't care and just work like just that. Work. Okay. Um, other people put all their money in Bitcoin and cash out enough to retire. No joke. One of my mentees in freelancing did that. Yeah. Every person has their own dreams and ambitions. When did he invest in Bitcoin? It's last year. Yeah, when it was already expensive, right? Somewhat. Yeah, so I think he went like 3 or 5x or something, and he cashed it out in Portugal where he didn't have to pay tax. Mm, that's smart. Yeah, well, you're a freelancer, you can do that. Okay, thanks. We have a bunch of other questions. So would you recommend building a portfolio to showcase your skills and well, for reaching out to new customers? I recommend building a portfolio of products you can reuse and basically do it again for other customers. And that's going to be efficient because in my experience, customers, if they like you and you tell them that you can do it, then they will give you a shot. Yeah. This tool that you're developing is one of such things, right? That you can, if somebody has a problem and then you can say, hey, you know what? I actually have a solution for you. Let's give it a try, right? This is the solution. I can implement it for you. If you want, uh, let's try and uh, And they typically will agree, right? Exactly. So for example, this tool that I'm talking about for data loading, I'm personally using it to create really good pipelines, but you know, it's also usable by someone that doesn't want to create really good pipelines, but just wants to throw some stuff in a database. If a client wants it done commercial grade and then with a nice dbt package on top that has iterative incremental oh. and cross database compatible and all the nice stuff with rebuilding state, having a nice uh, schema, maybe even some. So for example, for Raza, we even inject templates into Metabase through the API. So yeah, if you want something like that, of course, it's not open source anymore. <laughs> okay. not, not all the work. Mm -hmm. But still, the, you want to show them that you can solve their problems as quickly as possible, right? Yeah. But I guess a portfolio is a good start anyways, right? If you don't have a portfolio of reusable things, a portfolio with projects you solved is already good enough. The question is who you're talking to. And I think, you know, if you go through agencies like Hayes, then you will probably be talking to a technical person that is hiring you. And then maybe a portfolio is useful. 
if you are talking directly to your clients, then chances are that those might be business people, mm-hmm. people that already know you, and then they won't care about your portfolio. Personally, I talk to the second type of people. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. Is freelancing better suited for extroverts or introverts can also do this? I'm an introvert. Okay. So I would say if you're an extrovert, that is a nice bonus. What you need to do is just not get in your own way, ultimately. You're the only person who can stop you. Okay. So you said some people, when we were talking about stopping uh, exchanging time for money, you said that it's not that everyone wants, some people want to work less. Is it feasible to, let's say, work only three months per, I don't know, per year, or it's too little? Like, is it even possible? Are there people who are interested in this kind of stuff? Like as a companies. So I would say I've had projects that I could run either between one and three days a week or one and four. Four days is already considered full time. Mm-hmm. Some projects might run a week if it's just like a small helping something might run a year. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, you can also say you've had enough after three months or you can stay ahead of time. But would it be enough money, let's say, income-wise, if I just worked three months per year, or probably not? You were working three months per year and only taking the projects that were paying you a decent enough rate. So let's say 120 multiplied by eight, that's like a thousand per day, multiplied by 60 for three months. So I would say 60K. If you live in Germany, you probably have to pay about a third of that as taxes subtract health insurance for about 10k but that's the max if you earn 55k and you're left with i think 30,000 which is actually very comfortable mm-hmm. outside of berlin right but if you live in berlin then uh, you spend most of the money on rent my apartment eight years ago so i'm not entirely sure ah, okay <laughs> okay yeah you're like you i guess now you said that you're not actively looking for new projects but at some point you were looking for new projects and you said you always wanted to leave some room for learning for yourself. And in this case, do you have a strategy between deciding which project to take, which skills to learn next? I would say I don't necessarily have a skill strategy. It's very much also about what I like to do because being a generalist, I already have such a broad array of skills that finding work is not a problem and being a specialist doesn't necessarily help me either find more work or do much better at that work so i really go by interest Mm -hmm. like interest can be interested in technology or interested in domain or interested in working with specific people right doesn't matter yeah okay how can i check if freelancing is for me so let's say i work well i have a full-time job and I hear to this conversation and it, it all sounds nice, like working three months per year, doing all that, uh, and then I know developing a product and then selling this for millions. This is all good in my imagination, but how can I check if it's actually for me? So I can tell you about the people who haven't managed freelancing successfully and why they failed. And I think, you know, if you're that kind of person, then maybe it's not the best option for you. So there are two types of people that fail. The ones that don't put themselves out there because they think, ah, it's fine. I'll find the work when I need it. But you need to build a network. And then this is not a deterministic action. If you do this, this will happen. It might happen, might not. So you need to keep at it. And the second thing is you definitely need to ask for a decent rate. If you're afraid to ask for a good rate if you are asking for the equivalent of a salary or something like that then you will fail because you won't be able to make ends meet due to the added risk and occupancy rate and all that Mm. so you said a good occupancy rate is uh, 75 percent yeah so it means that you work only 75 percent of the year where it means you would be working 1700 hours and you don't control when this when you work, when you don't, like a project might end and it might take two weeks to find a new project, right? And so these two weeks, you're not working. Yes. In all honesty, I've 
only really had downtime when we had the first corona wave and everybody panicked and they cut all the contracts. Mm-hmm. Other okay. than downtime. Yeah, I think you said that market is different right now. So talking about Berlin, uh, so there's a question about Berlin. Like, is it the market in Berlin currently good for freelancers in terms of pay opportunities and everything? Yes, but you do need to put yourself out there and make your own opportunities. If you're going to wait for the few projects that come at you, then you will compete with the other people who are doing the same. So unless you're as good or better than them, you know, it's going to be hard. But I would say one of the most important things to being able to take a freelancing job is to be available. So, yeah, I think it, you will find something. Okay. And in terms of expectations from clients, so let's say if we compare a full-time employee from a company and a freelancer, would a company expect more from a freelancer in terms of, I don't know, being more proactive, driving decision-making, like, I don't know, coming up with architectural proposals, or all of that is in the scope of working document that you mentioned? I I would say people are people. Mm -hmm. So it really depends. I'm the kind of person that does get involved. I just can't let it go. So other people, even as employees, you have to beg them to do their thing or, you know, they don't get involved. They're not proactive and so on. I would say if you are a proactive person, that wants to get stuff done, you will get access to the best clients and the best rates. Okay. And again, just to make it clear, by proactive, you mean, you said putting yourself out there. And by that, you mean networking with people, uh, keeping in touch with, I don't know, past clients or what exactly? I mean, you don't necessarily need to keep in touch with past clients, but yes, keep networking, maintain a healthy network. I would say when you work, make sure you care like actually care about the outcome of the project care that it's a good outcome for the client and the good outcome for the client sometimes might be that the client is happy and not necessarily what you think is a good outcome mm-hmm. but if you actually do what people want and help them and advise them then they will usually find this so invaluable that they will want to keep working with you all the time okay what do you think about working for two clients simultaneously does it make sense does it happen So, you know, some people advise you to do that simply like don't put all your eggs in one basket. I would say, yeah, don't put all your eggs in one basket and have some savings because focus is important. And if you want to do a good job, I think it's best that you do focus. It might also depend on you if you have the capacity to do multiple clients. I like to usually have one main client and one side client that is small enough just for some extra learning or networking. So sometimes I take these small projects just for enlarging the network, but otherwise I would say just focus on one. If you want to make the best money, just focus on one. So how does it look in practice? Let's say you spend, I don't know, three days on your main client, one day on your other client, and I don't know, one day chilling on the beach. It could be like that. I'm not the chilling on the beach kind of guy. If I go to the beach, then I'm going to be walking around for the whole day, but... Okay. And in terms of managing expectations, like how do you manage expectations of this second client? Yeah, I guess you need to tell them, hey, I actually have my primary client, so all I do for you will be like a background activity for me. Sorry about that. Yes, of course. You need to tell them ahead of time and you need to be very clear because... Otherwise, they will have expectation for you to answer and communicate in times when you won't be able to. And if you do that, then you will have a problem. Okay. And uh, I know that we should be wrapping up. I remember now we actually talked in person a month ago, I think. And I was asking you about that. And you said there is uh, some cooperative, freelance cooperative. Can you tell us more about this? What is this and how to get in? So to get in, I will send a link to you and then you can send it further. Essentially, it's a Slack group that is a bunch of data freelancers that are loosely cooperating. Some of them know each other well. And we do, you know, this thing where we help each other with clients. So we tell each other the projects that we find. We do take fees, but it's usually much smaller than what will happen outside of the group. 
Yeah, and there is also, you know, a little bit of a mastermind network that allows mm -hmm. it. Is it Germany specific or it's worldwide? Or? I started it with people from Berlin. I started inviting some further people, but I have not advertised it broadly. So, you know, it's just kind of organically grown to 20 something people. Yeah, there is more work there than we can take usually. So mm -hmm. definitely a good place for people who want to start freelancing. Would you suggest people to start a similar cooperative, let's say, if they are not from Berlin, if they are, I don't know, from some other geographical area? Uh, would you suggest starting like that for them? If you are starting freelancing, I suggest starting broader. So rather than creating a very narrow interest group, like a freelance cooperative, I would say create a broader interest group. So like a BI group or data group for your hometown and meet these people, create personal relationships, and they will be your network. Mm -hmm. Any networking events in Berlin that you would recommend for freelancers? I wouldn't know off the top of my head, but in this group, sometimes we meet. Maybe last thing, actually, I usually ask at the end is what's the best way to get in touch with you? Is it like LinkedIn? Is it this uh, freelance cooperative email? Yeah, if you're on this co-op and you want to Slack me, Slack is going to be faster, but I'm checking LinkedIn quite regularly when I can. Okay. Thanks, Adrian, for coming today, for answering all these questions, for, for sharing your experience. Thank you. Have a nice weekend. And if you go on my LinkedIn, actually, there's a link to the GitHub account where if all goes well in one week, you will find this loading tool. Cool. I'm looking forward to seeing it. I hope it will be fun. Have a good one. Bye.